Hey everyone, I'm Francesca Maxime, and this is the Rerooted Podcast on Ram Dass's Be Here Now Network, and really grateful to have the guest that we have today, continuing our conversation about trauma sort of as this portal to spirituality and the ways in which um, it can perhaps inform our understanding of what our process is, what our path is, and how we actually do get into a state of regulation, balance, and equanimity as opposed to uh, dissociation or checking out or feeling as though we're permanently broken when in fact, um, yeah, there may be a few breaks, but then can we have the repair after the rupture? And I think our guest today will uh, in fact show that we can. Janina Fisher, <laughs> Janina Fisher uh, is a PhD, a licensed clinical psychologist instructor at the Trauma Institute, an outpatient clinic and research center founded by Bessel van der Kolk. And she's known for her expertise as both a therapist and a consultant. She's a past president of the New England Society for the Treatment of Trauma and Dissociation, an EMDR International Association credit provider, a faculty member of the Sensory Motor Psychotherapy Institute, and a former instructor at Harvard Medical School. And I'm going to stop there, although I could keep going because it's probably like 10 pages long, um, because I want to actually talk to her because she's here with us today. Janina, it's a pleasure to have you join us today on Rebooted. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so glad to see you. Um, one of the things that um, you, know, you, you, you have done also is your book, Healing the Fragmented Cells of Trauma Survivors. And um, I read it and I I really admire the fact that you put this out there because it's something that clinicians can read, but also that people can read. People meaning right. patients, clients, lay people. Right. It's accessible in that way. And I'd like to start, if you don't mind, with your definition of trauma or of, of, of post-traumatic stress. Because I think it's changing now, but people may still have an idea of what it is. And that may not be what you understand it to be. Absolutely. And, you know, it. What trauma is has always been hard to define. The original definition was an event outside the range of normal human experience. And we very quickly discovered that actually trauma is quite common and it was not at all outside the range of normal human experience. So then we began to define it as an overwhelming experience that <clears throat> conveys a sense of life or death threat. Whether the individual is objectively at risk to be killed or not, the subjective experience is, I'm gonna be killed, I'm gonna be wiped out. And of course, how vulnerable we are um, is a very important part of that. Because, <clears throat> excuse me, if we're very small, if we're infants, it takes very little to traumatize us. Uh, and I always say, you know, when, if a parent leaves an infant alone for five hours, that's a traumatic experience and a risk to that infant's life. If a parent leaves a three-year-old alone for five hours, the three-year-old will feel subjectively unsafe, but will cope, will be able to find the cereal, will be able to make do, but the subjective feeling will be overwhelming. Um, if we're 13 and we're left alone for five hours, 
we we're celebrating. So how vulnerable the individual is, is just as important as the magnitude of the event. And also the attachment research of the last 30 years says you can traumatize a child without actually laying a hand on that child if you frighten the child. So, so and that become, gets us into a gray area because more and more trauma is being defined as I had a critical father and a depressed mother. That's not trauma. That's, I suppose, it might be if it was a three-month-old. But, but we have to be very careful. Trauma is an event so big that it overwhelms the individual's capacity to cope and, and um, evokes a sense of life or death threat. Right. Beautiful. Thank you for that. Um, And that capacity that each individual, each organism um, would use a human organism where, you know, sort of the human mammals, um, that 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 capacity can, that it's not fixed, um, although it is set, so to speak, perhaps by factors, um, like you're talking about, that can influence uh, early development of the organism that can then influence um, the development of that organism, but that it continues to be malleable. Um, and that I really just want to put that out there. So anybody who's saying, well, gee, that did happen to me when I was three. You know? <laughs> uh, I'm like, yeah, right. hope. oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think the trauma field is one of the most helpful as specialty areas in the psychology world because we're talking about wounds that can heal. And uh, even though people have suffered terrible experiences, the capacity that the human body has for repair is um, breathtaking. Yeah, I love that. Okay, beautiful. So your work um, that I have been uh, a student of has been around structural dissociation and has been around using um, sensory motor psychotherapy and internal family systems um, to inform your approach to helping uh, your patients and, and helping the folks that 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 seek your, your guidance. And um, there are some sort of fundamental things that seem to come up uh, uh, again and again around that, that you might want to explain or share with um, our listeners and our viewers. Yes. Um, You know, when the trauma field began in uh, 1980, I believe, uh, we actually didn't know what we were doing. (laughs) We had no clue. Uh, It became clear that combat veterans and rape victims had anxiety and depression, but it wasn't responding the way most ordinary anxieties and depressions uh, respond. And, uh, and it was thanks to people like Vessel van der Kolk that we had a word, trauma, to explain and a diagnosis post-traumatic stress, but we didn't know what to do <laughs> with these people who were getting diagnoses of post-traumatic stress. So we did what Freud advised us to do. 
we invited people to talk about their traumatic experiences. But it, by the early 90s, it became clear that wasn't working. And that, in fact, many of them are getting much worse the more they talked about what had happened. <clears throat> so we began to explore. And I remember the days in the early 90s when you just tried anything. And if it worked, it became part of trauma treatment. And you shared it with your fellow trauma treaters. If it didn't work, you went on to try something else. And that's how Bessel discovered the body because he, he had this theory, the body keeps the score, but it was really through experimenting that he saw, oh, when we address the bodily effects, something changes. And I found, when I discovered Dick Schwartz in 1996, I realized when I talk about a symptom or a distressing feeling as a part, people, can be in relationship, a mindful relationship to that part or that feeling, and it changes the experience. So, so it was in the spirit of what can we find that helps people that I really, I was inspired by, by Dick Schwartz's work. I was inspired by the fact that I had a, a whole slew of patients with what we then called multiple personality disorder come into my practice. And so it was necessary to figure out a way to work with people who were fragmented or dissociated. And, and that's really how the trauma field began. It was very practical. What can we do today to help this person sitting in front of me? Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it was. It really was uh, very special. We didn't have manualized treatments in those days. So it was very much in the moment. What can we do? And it's funny because thanks to the influence of mindfulness, we're back to the present moment, uh, which is lovely. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's all, it's all we got, right? <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. I mean, no. But we forget that. Historically, we forget that. And then we have to discover it again. And then we forget it again. And then we have to discover it again. <laughs> right. It's like, um, you know, if you're following Winnicott and John Willoughby, it's like attachment theory at a, at a global scale, at a, world, at a universal scale, right? Right. They're, they're, <laughs> we're rupturing and repairing at each time. Hopefully, we're getting stronger as, con as a consequence, although... Um, <clears throat> sometimes it doesn't feel that way. That's right. Um, <laughs> the world um, has to cooperate, right? right? We can evolve, but is the world cooperating? Right, right, right. Yeah, and again, like, and even on that, just to extend the analogy, is about being out of balance, I would say. And so a lot of what you're doing in terms of having the capacity to meet the trauma in a way that is... Um, to use a word that I think can mean different things to different people, but that has a certain resiligency to it, mm -hmm. um, or to meet it, you know, to meet that is to be able to have your nervous system be in um, be in balance and to understand that a little bit more and get more familiar 
with that. And so you talk about uh, different things like um, fight, flight, freeze parts, submit, attach parts. And then in terms of the nervous system about hypo and hyper arousal, when we're sort of checked out and dissociated in that way, we're sort of deadened. And then other places where we're sort of over anxious and hyperactive and always sort of leaning in and leaning forward. And um, I'm just wondering if maybe you could maybe provide an example. I know um, sometimes in your teachings you do um, of what a session might look like with someone that was coming into this to say, well, I've been in psychoanalysis or in talk therapy for a really long time. I know that my mom left me in my crib for five hours at a time when I was an infant. And, you know, I'm having trouble in my current day-to-day relationships and I can't feel for people the empathy that I want to, or they say I should, um, can you help me? Um, that's just in a theoretical example, but either that or something from your own practice where someone might see that, hey, maybe this sort of more bottom-up or body-oriented approach has um, something to offer. Right. And, and, and I really combine the, the body-oriented approach with the parts-oriented approach as needed, depending on the person. Because some people who've survived trauma have a very deep phobia of the body, and it's not a helpful way to help them. Because if you ask, what do you notice in your body? What's happening right here, right now in your body? Um, It's an overwhelming, frightening question, which doesn't really help to facilitate a healing environment. Uh, Sometimes people feel pathologized by the language of parts. So uh, I I was said to a group of of students in training with me just last weekend, I said, we have great, great tools. We have amazing methods and approaches. The problem is that we don't stop and try to sell them to our to our clients. We just plunge in because we know it's going to work. We don't stop and say, I have an approach which might be helpful to you. Are you interested in it? And then when we plunge in, we're surprised when people say, whoa, why are you doing this? Right? I, I came to tell you my problems. I didn't come to be asked these questions about my body. So so there's a piece of this that I think involves how we how we introduce these approaches, um, how we make them user friendly. And when I said to my students, I'm sure it was a little bit of a uh, of a terrible analogy. I said, you know, if you walked onto a car lot and the salesman started selling you a car before you'd had a chance to tell him what you were interested in, what would you do? And people said, we'd walk out. So, yes. So therapists have to stop, right? We have to take some time in the present moment to to create a, not a full-fledged relationship, because you can't do that in one hour, but, but just to create a sense of, uh, we're here, and what we're going to do will be up to both of us, not just up to the therapist. 
Yeah, no, I really appreciate that. And that's a great analogy. It's like, when somebody's like, and you're like, whoa, I wasn't really there yet. Thank you so much. Yeah, exactly. But uh, I mean, I'll go to the Hyundai dealership instead of the Honda one. You know, like, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and so again, that's like, I know Diane Poolheller, another person I've interviewed on this podcast, um, who's also a trauma therapist, um, talks about trauma. I think she may be using someone else's definition, but she says, too much, too fast, too soon. And so too much, too fast, too soon. So that sense of invasion around like, I'm already selling you the car. It's almost like re-traumatizing, right? Like, yeah. Well, it's certainly not going to engender a feeling of trust. Right, right, right. right. Or, or triggering, I should say. I wouldn't say re-traumatizing, obviously. Yeah. That's a different, like you've started with. So, so, okay. So in our sessions or in your sessions with clients, with people, with patients, um, you said you worked with people who have been called, it was formerly called multiple personality disorder. And can you sort of explain a little bit about how you would work with someone um, that's presenting symptoms or, you know, issues around um, feeling like they're acting in different ways with different people? Mm-hmm. Which, which certainly most of us can resonate to because because to some extent we all do that and it's adaptive. Uh, my, my son is in a training that I'm teaching right now and I, I meant to ask him, am I the same person when I'm teaching the class that I am when I'm with the family? Uh, because I think that there are different sides of us that, are, that emerge in different situations. In... In dissociative identity disorder, uh, the the major criterion for a diagnosis of dissociative identity disorder is that two or more parts of the personality can take over the body and act independently of the individual's consciousness. So typically, uh, someone with dissociative identity disorder would come with problems like, you know, last weekend, I found myself two states away in a place I'd never been and a place I never intended to go, right? Or I remember a woman who came for an assessment and she said, you know, I'm a very quiet a uh, very uh, religious person, right? I don't smoke, I don't drink, I'm just very, very quiet. And she said, last weekend, I suddenly found myself in a bar, a very scruffy bar. And then uh, several hours later, I found myself in a motel room with a man. And I don't know what's happening to me. So they were describing experiences where another part took control of the body. Those are the extreme cases. Yeah, and those um, are the ones that can put us into a place of danger or of you know real uncertainty, perhaps. And um, and again, I want to just like demark the fact that this is 
um, what you're experiencing. But I can say, for example, that like there are periods where I've gone online and I've just sort of like gone off the deep end and bought a bunch of things that I didn't really want or need and spent money that I didn't really expect to spend. And I kind of was in this other state. And now that I understand my nervous system and my whole thing a little differently, I'm like, oh, you were, you know, having this energy of, of you were caught, your nervous system was caught in hyper arousal. And instead of taking that mindful pause and checking in and having that consciousness, as you said, come back online and say, is this really what you want to do? Can you wait until tomorrow to buy this stuff? If you still want it, then is that what you want to be able to do? And that that's like a minor mini, mini kind of thing. But just, I want to just sort of demark that as like, as you said, we all kind of have elements. Well, we have those moments, right? When we're kind of in a bubble and we're on a mission, if, and if we could pause and reflect on what we're doing, we'd say, why am I doing this? I don't need half the things I'm ordering. Uh, but in the moment, we're in that bubble, and we can't see past it. Right, I think it's a very human experience. Um, and there are a whole range of diagnoses in the mental health field that describe people who are fragmented, the most common of which is borderline personality disorder. Uh, and I believe all these personality disorders, diagnoses, describe people who are fragmented and who are in conflict with themselves. Part of them wants to die, part of them wants to get married and raise a family. Right, part of them wants to drink and drug. I call it sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Right, and, and at the same time, um, they want a life that's peaceful and meditative. Right, and uh, and there's a conflict that they struggle with. Uh, and then, of course, then they feel shame because instead of it adhering to the path that they've consciously chosen, they've been off in sex, drugs, and rock and roll, then they experience an ashamed part that floods them with a sense of inadequacy and, um, and embarrassment. Yeah, I, I think that's so rich because it's, it's, it's really making space or creating space or opening up to the fact that we all have these different facets. And I think, you know, um, you know, Joseph Goldstein, um, renowned mindfulness teacher, talks a lot about, you know, just um, the, the process of naming and, you know, oh, I'm, this is what I'm noticing now within me and, you know, a mindfulness practice, right? Okay. And, and Jack talks about it too, Jack Cornfield, you know, restlessness, restlessness, um, you know, anger, heat. And then you sort of learn to name it more as the sensation as, as, you, as we often do in clinical work. Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to the story that is attached to it or the idea behind it. But it's a little different in psychotherapy insofar as that it's, it's more the, you're, you're also looking back of, hmm, how did that come to be, right? Right. Or in my case, I'm not necessarily doing that because I'm actually more interested in the moment-to-moment -moment awareness of of the different parts, the different impulses, the different emotions. And, uh, and usually the client, and I have already stipulated that this client has experienced trauma. So 
I'm thinking of a young woman to whom I did a, for whom I did a consultation this week. She came in and she could say immediately, right, I'm, I'm here with the following questions, but they all go back to the fact that I was abused as a child. So we've stipulated to the trauma. I don't then have to go back again and again. So I then asked her, and on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis, what issues and feelings uh, cause you the most distress? And, uh, and as she told me, those issues and feelings had nothing to do with the events. I mean, nothing directly to do with the events. Um, but they were long-standing issues and feelings that had plagued her. Um, like, um, like feeling a lot of um, panic about being alone or abandoned. Um, you know, very, very competent, resourced woman, but with this panic about being left alone, with a tendency to expect a lot in relationships and be very angry and hurt when the other person didn't come through. And and as we broke that down into the parts, she could see, oh yes, there's this young part of me that yearns to be loved and imagines the other person is going to be warm and caring and interested and will make her feel special. And when other people just do what they do, and as we know, people do tend to do what they do, um, it triggers this little girl's distress. This person doesn't care about me. And that triggers the anger of the fight part. How dare you be self-absorbed? How dare you not see what I'm going through. And then, of course, what happens is the angry part pushes people away, and that child part is left alone. So to understand it, not as there's something wrong with me, I have trouble with relationships, even with friends, to understand it as this is a a trauma-related battle it's being fought out moment by moment by moment. Yeah. It's, you know, obviously all of these approaches are mindfulness-based, both sensory motor psychotherapy, internal family systems, and my integration of the two. Right, yes, because with mindfulness being the present moment-to-moment attention to what's actually arising here and, you know, really noticing what's happening with um, what Stephen Porges would call the interoceptive awareness in terms of what's going on inside my body. Am I feeling tight? Am I feeling hot? Am I feeling prickly? Am I whatever, with, as well as what's outside? But also really noticing the idea of um, not having the judgment or the story necessarily go along with whatever the sensation or the familiarity is. Mm -hmm. And so sort of questioning that and having a little bit of a pause there to interrupt that. And as you do it relationally with the 
therapist like yourself, you can kind of have that system of checks and balances in a way that if you're sitting on your cushion or doing your own private practice, private practice, meaning your own private mindfulness practice, um, you might not, um, you you know, it's, it's more, it can be supportive, um, Mm -hmm. to work with someone to kind of unpack some of this. Absolutely. Especially because trauma related, um, emotions, thoughts, uh, physical sensations, images tend to be supercharged, right? They tend to be overwhelming. So they can be very hard to sit with um, without some support, and, which makes meditation retreats hard for some of my clients because they can just get overwhelmed by what's coming up. No, I, I love that. And, and I, that's why I think the mindfulness practices, um, you find the ones that work for you, or perhaps they'll work later or be supportive later, but maybe not now. Maybe there's a way to work relationally, um, or maybe there's a way to do both. Like you work in, you know, sangha or community, um, going to shorter meditation or day-long things as opposed to a 10-day retreat all of a sudden, um, yeah. where you're just having to be with your thoughts and then you're like, oh my God, I just entered a junkyard. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I don't know where to go, you know. <laughs> and, and at least that was my experience initially. Yeah, so you know that's um, beautiful. <laughs> and, and I think I think you bring up a really, really important point. Um, is that there's no one right way to be mindful. Right? And so the expectation that that one is going to have the ideal experience is actually not not really in the spirit of of mindfulness practice i remember once in a sensory motor psychotherapy training uh, there were a lot of people in the room who'd come late and you could hear them rustling with their belongings and you know you could hear some people unpacking all their stuff while others were trying to meditate. And I was sitting there just feeling so irritated. And then, you know, they're messing up my meditation. And then I had this, this thought, actually, meditation is about noticing what is. <laughs> so I, then I just noticed totally. how all these sounds were affecting me. But it was so interesting because I had this idea that it was supposed to be peaceful and quiet. And, uh, and it was really important to say, no, 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 <laughs> there's no supposed to, right? right. What it's just is what it is moment to moment. Right. And I, and, and I really love what you're saying because it was actually where I was going. So this is so good is that, you know, it's the awareness of what's happening and being online with the experience of, oh, this is irritating me. And then you can, you could go through the inquiry of, oh, what does that irritation feel like in the body? Oh, I'm noticing my shoulders are like earrings and, you know, and my, I'm getting tight or this is, I want to yell at them or something. But then you're using that pause or that interruption to kind of say, so I'm aware of these things, which means I don't have to get up and leave the room or I don't have to go and yell at them. And that was when the behavioral changes can come into play. And then there can be real agency and choice around, okay, they're going to be, this is going to be, you know, one of the mindfulness teachings is nothing is permanent, nothing is perfect, and nothing is personal, then it'll pass. They're not going to be unpacking forever. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And then I realized, oh, 
actually what's happening is I'm having a judgment that they're being inconsiderate. And that's actually what's evoking the anger. Uh, and then what happens when I let that thought go? All right, so it's, I think this is what I try to teach therapists, <clears throat> excuse me, about the work I write about in Healing the Fragmented Selves is that, that the most important part of this treatment is teaching the client to be in a mindful relationship to the parts. All the other interventions flow from that. But if the client or the survivor doesn't have that ability to separate from the part, to disidentify from it, and to notice it with interest, um, everything else doesn't follow. It's all based on having this this awareness that changes the relationship. Yeah, that's so beautiful. Uh, that's and then they can be with themselves. And it's very hard. Exactly, exactly. And as a therapist, this is I think the Achilles heel of the therapist is that we because we come into this work with a calling to help, we want to do something. And it's often very hard for therapists to just focus on the awareness, on changing the relationship really through mindfulness. Well, I love that because really like from the, you know, original psychologist, you know, Buddha, yeah. 25, 27, <laughs> 800 years ago, whatever, um, that, that, that that's really sort of what this is about, right? Like it's not so much about changing what's on the outside, although perhaps that may be an outcome if we're able to be cognizant of what's happening on the inside and, and, and maybe mm -hmm. shift what is, he would say is unskillful, right? Not helpful mm -hmm. um, because you're noticing, yeah. as you were saying about your other client, like how does this show up? Like, oh, this is not helpful to me that this woman is getting angry at her partner or something. So then how yeah. do I sh shift that? But I don't, you don't, in my experience with my own therapy in the past, not these new, newer approaches, I, it didn't help. Like I knew that I was not supposed to get angry, but I, was, <laughs> <laughs> I, was like, I don't know what to do with this. Because I became well, the anger. I became soaked exactly. in it. And it's different when you're with the anger and you have it sitting next to you. Exactly. And you just used one of my favorite words because I often say to people, notice that feeling rather than becoming it, right? Rather than being the anger, let's just notice the anger and notice it as a part. And, uh, and I think that's really what happens to all of us. We become the emotion. Well, I'm curious in your work, would you then invite the person to say, notice that that's the way that you would be feeling, right? Okay, notice the anger as opposed to being the anger. So that's one thing. Then would you also invite them to, for example, explore like, if you were talking about judgment, you were saying the person who was unpacking was irritating you as you were sitting there. Um, if they were saying, but I'm not supposed to be angry, then would you get into what the narrative is? Ooh, there's a part of you who is... Um, sensing that it's not okay to be angry or that it shouldn't mm -hmm. be angry or whatever. Can we get curious about that or, um, exactly, exactly. Wow. So there's a part of you that believes 
it's not okay to get angry. And could we be curious or interested about that in that part? Yeah. Um, and which is very, very helpful, right? Because as soon as soon as we say, let's be curious about the part of you that believes that, um, it it changes the relationship to it. Yeah, no, I, I, I love that. Um, I think it's very useful to people who, who have sort of edicts um, that have grown up with certain things of you're supposed to do this and you can't do that and you know all these things. And, and we all have been brought up with those edicts. We just, depending on our cultures, we have different edicts. <laughs> I haven't met anyone who didn't grow up with a list of edicts. <laughs> right, right, right. Yes, indeed. Um, yeah, personally, family, intergenerationally, ancestrally, culturally, like they're, you know, multi, multi levels. Um, and, and I know that one of the things that I've been trying to work on as I go through this journey of um, healing and then also of sharing, you know, perhaps practices that have been beneficial mm-hmm. to me um, has also been an invitation to explore a little bit around trauma as something that obviously everybody experiences in their own way, right? In their own individuated, individuated way mm-hmm. um, for their own personal organism uh, as a human being. But that also there are some kinds of more systemic or greater or larger um, issues that can apply to race or the LBGTQIA plus community or ableism around different levels of um, you know, ability and, and, and different things like that, able-bodiedness, I should say, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that I'd love to explore with you how this work may or may not be available or, or more helpful or anything like that to different kinds of oppressed or marginalized communities because certainly I think everybody needs it and I just am wanting to try and share it or find a way to yeah. make it apply to more people. I'm just curious yeah. if you have any thoughts on that. I do actually. I have I have lots of thoughts, and partly because I do a lot of teaching in Europe in different countries, and in different languages, uh, with a tra- with the help of a translator, and I go to different countries, and often the language of that country lacks words that are fundamental to the ideas that I'm talking about. Uh, right. So if the language lacks those terms, for instance, in Norwegian, there isn't a term to describe the part that fights, what I call the fight part, the part of, of any of us that's driven by the fight response. There's no word for that in Norwegian. So they say the angry part, which doesn't quite capture the whole, the whole of what it means to have a, a fight part or an aggressive part in any, whether we use it, whether we act on it or not, um, having an angry part is different from having an aggressive part, a part that wants to fight whether it does or not. So I was thinking earlier that the, the whole concept of mindfulness is not, is, would be perceived by 
people of color as a white privileged idea, right? Oh, you, you, you privileged white people have the time to sit and meditate. That's not what happens in our world. And, uh, and so I was thinking, we really have to find language because anybody can be curious. Anybody can notice with interest, right? That's, that's a very simple um, what skill that anyone can learn. I think we can teach it across cultures. Um, we, and we can be attuned to what is the culture curious about? How do I, how in this culture do you communicate? Let's be curious about something. Let's be interested. Uh, and uh, is it a culture that comes with a lot of judging of oneself and others? Um, and then how do we separate that? Can we ask, I mean, I love to ask people to be curious, not judgmental. And I joke with them. I say, you know, if judgment was going to work to change you, it would have worked already. <laughs> so you've, you've researched self-judgment up, down, and sideways. It hasn't helped you to grow and change. Would you be willing to try curiosity? And that's really the, the entree to mindfulness because, because curiosity is not a non-threatening word doesn't feel too hard. It doesn't feel too white privileged. It's just curiosity. Yeah, I appreciate that. It's, um, and I'm also thinking of one of the girls that I'm working with now who's 17 and she's very reactive and she spent some time behind bars and um, she had gotten into a big fight the other day with someone who also was another young girl who had a lot and does have a lot of trauma and, um, and an explicit trauma. Her aunt had tried to drown her when she was four. Um, and she has uh, been in foster care uh, ever since. And, and there's just a lot of trauma there. And, and the way that they're going back and forth is about respect. Who needs to be right? How do I appear to other people? How do I, how are you making me feel? And they're almost, um, in this case, and I'm not saying this is the case for everyone, almost like I'm thinking that there's something um, that you're going to say or do um, about me or toward me before I know that that would be true. So from a straight mindfulness perspective, we would say like, oh, we'll notice that you're thinking that thought, but right. it is a thought. But in this case, it's almost like if I don't watch my back and make sure that I keep that cloak of um, your response around in this community, I know people who've let down their guard and it has not ended well. Right. alternatively to keep it going this way it also could equally end just as poorly and right. so it's it's even in those like really acute situations that i'm like wow i don't know if this is gonna what do i do right. <laughs> absolutely because there is a reality that many people many there's a huge percentage of people in the world who are not in safe situations right really entering into meditation presumes we're in a safe environment. <laughs> you, I mean, you might, I suppose, sit and meditate while bombs are dropping around you. 
Um, but most likely you take cover first, right? Because, um, yeah. so, so the way I would work with people who are in those environments, um, I can talk about the culture. I can, I can say, I remember I had this amazing, amazing Puerto Rico women, woman in a group. And I remember her saying to the other group members, uh, she said, you know, you have to understand my culture because in my family, it's more normal to go running down the street with a knife chasing somebody than it is to cry. <laughs> and she was right out there with it. But she right. taught me at a very important lesson because in a world that's not safe, there are in many, many cultures, people learn to fight first and ask questions later. And so I just, I have to acknowledge that, help them notice it. And then I have to say, and how's that working for you? Right? And, and, and I can agree with them, you know, maybe right. it's better than the alternatives to fight first. But but let's just focus on being interested and curious. Yeah. Um, and then I can teach them more mindful ways to be vigilant. So I love to teach people to use breath to achieve a calm but alert state, right? Because you can breathe for relaxation. You can breathe into a meditative state, but you can also breathe in such a way that you create a more calm, alert state. And, and I say, you know, being panicked it isn't very helpful because you're like <laughs> freaking out. You're not really looking around. Um, that's the key. The key to being safe is being calm, alert, and very aware. So I use that as my segue into awareness. Yeah, that's great. That's like the responsive versus the reactive and then using the breath to be energizing and not just to be um, calming, right? So if we're talking about Dan Siegel's window of tolerance and hyperarousal, hyperarousal is up here and we're like hyperactivated leaning in and hypoarousal is down here and we're sort of checked out and I don't really want to deal with, you know, life or whatever. I'm going to stay in the corner. Or I can't deal with life because I have no energy. Right, and I right. Have no emotion. Right, right. That right. this is more, um, more balanced. You're bringing it, bringing the system back into balance by saying yeah. it's not one or the other. Um, right, and I think to start with simply helping people to no to notice, right? Your body's telling us that where you come from, the safest thing was to fly beneath the radar to be numb, to not react, to have no energy to react, to not be able to think was brilliant, right? Or, you know, it was actually really smart of your nervous system to keep you freaked out all the time. Yeah. Because it keeps you ready. Right, right. And, and then and I have them notice that it's a problem rather than, the therapist yeah. or the parent. <laughs> that doesn't <laughs> 
<laughs> right. right. Exactly. Right, right, right. Yeah. And 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 I and I notice, and again, like I, I love what you're saying because in much the same way, it's like honoring the experience, honoring what's happening, honoring its usefulness. And I can't underscore this enough, right? Like that we're bowing to, well, this is coming into being because of something that has needed to be done. And um, it was helpful. And, and now we can question whether or not it's the most helpful. Right. And it may be for a time longer. Um, but can we at least be aware that there's another option down there if we can ever put it down? And also, can we engage in those self-protective efforts mindfully? Because I think it's a very different experience to be a young person in the environment in which you work. Uh, who says, okay, have to go out on the streets now. All right, I'm getting grounded. I'm getting calm but alert because I have to be really careful out there. And so that they're not just, um, and, and actually I think that's also a more regulated state than a, okay, I'm going out there. You know, <laughs> uh, and you know, I had clients early on, clients of color who would say to me, you know, we can't afford to be vulnerable, right? You, you, you know, the guidance counselors in school, they didn't understand that either. They wanted us to cry, but we can't be vulnerable because we have to go back out there. And so that's another adjustment I've made um, with particular cultures um, is I really want to, to honor that people who are afraid of vulnerability are afraid of vulnerability for a reason. Yeah. And this idea that therapists have, I mean, I've had therapists say to me, you know, I've been seeing so-and-so for four months and she hasn't cried yet. As if, as if somehow there was something wrong with the person mm. uh, because you're supposed to cry in therapy. Where did we get these ideas? Yeah. So, so I, I think for me, one of the very, very important things is, the, is to question our own assumptions yeah. uh, about what psychotherapy is. Because it's not for us. We're supposed to be doing it for the client. Right. And that, and that I think gets lost sometimes because again, like anything, you know, the difference between seeing things through your lens versus seeing things through, um, seeing things as they really are. And in the case of this, you're really sort of inviting in how the client or the patient or whatever sees the, the thing. Mm. Um, the last question before we go, because it's time yeah. to close, is what, what, what are your thoughts around um, the ability of the actual therapist to be self-regulated and self-aware mm. and mindful of the perspective that they bring um, in terms of their efficacy when they're looking at behavioral issues, you know, for example, how important is it for a therapist or how, you know, to be, to be able to be regulated and how does that? <laughs> I'm so glad you asked that question because <laughs> I, I talk a lot about this myth that the therapist um, can handle anything, right? That we somehow have nervous systems that purr, right? And they're, and we're not dysregulated by anything, which is 
of course not true because we're human beings. So of course we're dysregulated by, you know, we're, we feel stressed, burdened, anxious, um, angry, all the whole realm of feelings. And, and I think it's important to give ourselves permission. So to give ourselves permission to be dysregulated, um, to give ourselves permission to use our own physical and emotional reactions as information about the client, not just about us. So I, I noticed one day I was sitting with a client who has a very, very big, strong fight part. And, and that fight part was almost continuously angry with me in every session. And I thought I was handling it well, right? because I wasn't reacting. I was trying to empathize, all, which only seemed to make the client angrier. By the way, all the empathy, I see you very angry, was enraging to this client because she experienced it as condescension, right? She didn't experience it as empathic. It was like, they're there. Yeah, it's so patronizing. <laughs> patronizing, yeah. exactly, yeah. that's a yeah. good word. And I remember, so while I'm feeling like I'm enduring this, this attack. You're like, this isn't I, fun for me either. <laughs> right. And I'm thinking that I'm doing a good job. I noticed that my body was tense and there was enormous heat coming up. And I realized, oh, just because I'm not acting defensively doesn't mean I'm not defensive. Even if my mind isn't defensive, my body's definitely defensive. <laughs> And then I had another observation that when I spoke from this body that was tense and full of heat, that my words had a different edge than if I relaxed my body. So, so I think there is, there's so much that we could work with if we just start with accepting that we are going to have reactions. And, uh, and, you know, later on in the treatment, the client realized that actually what was happening was a part of her, her fight part was pushing me away. Yeah. And, uh, and so I think, and it felt to me like that was part of what I was feeling. I was feeling blast, actually, I was feeling blasted away. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, but it all, I was able to shift it by actually noticing, instead of thinking I'm on the moral high ground here, actually noticing what was happening in my body. Therapists don't have much permission to do that. Mm. And I think we have to give ourselves permission. We have to give ourselves, we have to give ourselves permission when we feel overwhelmed to change what's happening rather than just endure the overwhelm. Yeah. And I have a little saying, if I'm overwhelmed, the client is 10 times more overwhelmed. So I'm actually doing something helpful if I say, let's pause for a moment and both take a breath 
and let some of this settle. Uh, because it doesn't serve, it doesn't serve anybody if the client's overwhelmed and so is the therapist. Right, right. Thank you so much for that example. I think it's great. And I think it also applies to medical professionals, um, teachers, um, you know, people in other areas. And of course, it's going to be a little bit different if you have 30 kids in a classroom than if you have one person in your therapy office. But that idea of giving yourself permission to have mindful awareness of what's arising within you um, and your attitude about it, and they would call a Vedana in mindfulness teaching, your, your, your feeling tone around it, um, right. judgment or not, as opposed to just being caught up in it and pressing yeah. it away, which is really another form in mindfulness that we know of is resistance, right. which causes right. suffering. Yeah. So. yeah. And in California, my, my clients, almost all are meditators, and they use the language of attachment and aversion. And I found that so helpful yeah. to be able to bring into psychotherapy. Notice that feeling without attachment or aversion. I just think they're magical words. Yeah. Well, you're a magical teacher, <laughs> Dr. Janina Fisher, healing the fragmented cells of trauma survivors, overcoming internal self-alienation. I love the subheading, overcoming internal self-alienation, right? So we're reconnecting. We're reintegrating the parts of ourselves that we have in IFS language exiled or, you know, put off or whatever. And we're just bringing them all back into our full embodied awareness and experience so that we can actually get along with ourselves better so we can then get along with other people. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Brilliantly said. <laughs> and where can, they, where can they find you on the web, doctor? Uh, they can find me at uh, JaninaFisher.com. All right. I so appreciate our time together today and uh, all the contributions that you have made and continue to make. And I look forward to your next book. Thank you. And maybe Thank I'll you. see you in New York someday for sensory motor psychotherapy training. Who knows? Uh, I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> all right. I'll let you go. All right. Thanks so much. Thank, Thank you. you.